for December 29th, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 339. Serial. Are you allowed to be entertained? Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather from Los Angeles. Uh, this was Christmas week. This is we, we straddle the divide between Christmas and New Year's uh, in this podcast. It's the last podcast of 2014. Um, so uh, we've got a, a panel to overthink all, all manner of things, including cereal, uh, the Into the Woods film that was just released, and, um, and the overthinking Cowboy Bebop series, which recently had its spectacular and unexpected conclusion when we Beyonce'd 10,000 words of analysis uh, onto overthinkingit.com on Christmas morning. Uh, and it was, uh, let me tell you, it was hard to sit on that one for, for the couple weeks we knew that we were going to do it and, uh, and not even let, uh, not even let one word leak out. So that's, uh, that's there on overthinking it. We've got a great panel tonight, uh, including Ben Adams. Hey, Ben. Hey Matt, <laughs> I was on mute. Everyone's riding the everyone's riding the mute button. Everyone's got really good podcasting etiquette. We, I was going to say he waited till two thousand nine to finish that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like a four year uh, four year break between the um, between the the penultimate and the ultimate post in the Overthinking Cowboy Bebop series. Ben, it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hey, whoa, hey, lay off the champagne. It's not New Year's Eve yet, Matt. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We're glad you can join us tonight. We have Pete Fenzel from Boston. Hey, Pete, what's going on? Hello, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Matt. It's good to see you, Matt. It's good to see you, Matt. It's good to see you. After I saw Into the Woods, I was talking like that for like 20 minutes. So I don't know if, if you guys are exposed to, when you're exposed to long stretches of sondheim, you talk in musicality for a long time. Yeah, but you need, I mean, it, it's really, it's not enough to sing. You have to sing in sort of, you know, Sorkin-esque patter, uh, <laughs> right? In, in, in like extremely unexpected melodies, right? It You know, it'd be more like, you know, into the podcast. It's time to podcast. I hate to podcast. I have to podcast. <laughs> no one hates the podcast, Matt. No, podcasting is great. Um, and Shane Lovsky. Hello, Shana. I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I want to sing too, man, but I didn't see Into the Woods. So I'm going to go with uh, at the end of Cowboy Bebop. They say, boy, you're going to carry that weight. Carry that weight. A long time, Matt. A long time. I'm good. All right. I will. Well, you know what? You know who carried away a long time is Jordan Stokes, the author of the Cowboy Bebop series. (laughs) And Uh, he really did because every time I asked him, he the way he answered, it was like he had a boulder on his shoulders. He's like, "Yeah, I'm going to get to it one day." Well, uh, I mean, here, here's what I have to say about that. We're glad to we're glad to have it done. And believe it or not, the post that was posted on Overthinking It on Christmas Day was uh, less than half the size of the original draft of that post. So there is another ten thousand words of Overthinking Cowboy Bebop. And by the way, when Jordan uh, started, he was doing four or five episodes per. 
uh, four to five thousand word post, and he ended up doing um, one episode per post per four to five thousand word post. So uh, there is a lot of market opportunity, as they say, to go back and give the original episodes the deluxe treatment. You're going to hear some more uh, from us about that and some ways that you can support that work going forward in the coming weeks. So uh, look forward to that. And uh, hopefully it heralds a great new, um, great new sort of mode of, of guaranteeing that we can actually have the time and space we need to overthink the things that we all want to overthink and that you can have the overthinking that you want to have. Uh, more about that later this week. But tonight... Uh, it's night as we record this. I don't know if it's night where you're listening. Um, but on this podcast, I'm going to ask you a question, panel. In honor of this series, begun in 2009 and not completed until 2014, let me ask you, what did you begin in 2009 that you have yet to complete in 2014 uh, and would like to complete before the close of this year. Uh, first in the alphabet, drink, because it's not Pete Fenzel. If you are what? playing the overthinking it drinking game, it is Ben Adams. Hey, guys. So so actually, the, you added a, a little caveat at the end there that uh, is going to have to change my answer a little bit. You said it's something that we want to complete. Oh, well, whether, uh, whether the, you want to or not. So, I, yeah, because this is something I definitely don't want to complete by the end of the year. Because I'm looking at uh, Stokes' original post, and it was posted on November 9th, 2009. Uh, I was married on November 8th, 2009. Uh, so so the, my, the ongoing project of uh, my marriage, to which I'm very happy with, uh, is one day long older than... Uh, Stokes's Cowboy Bebop project. Uh, so, but there, there is one project that I do need to complete from that that, that endeavor, which is uh, we've been yeah. trying. Yeah, to... <laughs> not that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is uh, we've been trying to consolidate our pictures. We we both have you know thousands and thousands of pictures from our phones, from old cameras, on hard drives, on probably CDs somewhere. And I, I have a hard drive with the theory that we're going to consolidate them all into one giant mass. And we, we've yet to actually get around to organizing that. And that, that's been on my list since, since we got married. Did, did you and your wife take engagement photos in addition to the wedding photos? We did. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, it's you walking, walking along a, uh, uh, you know, walking along a beach holding hands or something like that. That, that, that is exactly what it is because I was living in Florida at the time. So yeah, be, beach was beach was where it was at. Can I, I? I'm you see maybe it's just that I wasn't paying paying attention, but I wasn't aware of this phenomenon until more recently than than 2009. And I sort of like uh, as is my you know as as is my personality. I, I'm a jerk and I have no friends. Like I I want to um, I want to you know uh, to alienate and confound my friends and loved ones by uh, you know by taking sort of parodic engagement photos should i ever be lucky enough to be uh to be engaged right and and uh I, i'm not sure that people would appreciate it really though it seems like a moment when irony is not the order of the day i i would appreciate it i would appreciate it. <laughs> i mean to be fair i was unaware of engagement photos being a thing until i was actually engaged and you know taking engagement photos so you know I feel yeah, like overthinking it. People should just get together, and we should do our own engagement photos. But like for the website, you know, so we can make it official. We're right, exactly. <laughs> we're a real website. We're uh, we're engaged in things. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. There, there's there's also um, 
I saw once a picture of you, uh, Ben, at a wedding on Facebook that just cropped up in my feed, and I couldn't help commenting on it because it was you in a dress uniform dipping your lovely wife and kissing her in the midst of dancing at someone else's wedding. And I felt like, oh, come on, Ben, leave some for the rest of us. You can't just, you can't just win every photograph on every wedding on every Facebook ever. Uh, and and I think I wrote something to that effect on the, the comment, which per, perhaps yeah, no, was ill. It's on Facebook. Sorry, <laughs> which perhaps was ill advised because uh, because it wasn't mine or yours or or anyone's. I think it was a third party's. But but still, sir, it's it's hardly fair. I must say. Well, I, I, I remember that comment. I appreciated it. But to, to be fair, that was a military wedding, so I was not the only person at dress whites at the wedding. So you know, at least. <laughs> At least that has a competition. Were, the, were you the only person dipping your wife d- down low to the floor and kissing her in the middle of the dance floor as, you know, uh, you know well-dressed people swirled around you? That, that's entirely possible. How many, people, how many people at your wedding were higher ranking than you? At my at, wedding? Yeah. Uh, none. Actually, I did at the oh, time. Oh, yeah. Number one. <laughs> ben Adams. Obviously. Cap- Captain of the, of the Pegasus. Yep. Definitely. Yes, I was the, the, the high-ranking officer at my wedding where there was, I think, like two other military people. <laughs> <laughs> hey, those are the dulcet tones of Pete Fenzel. Pete, what did you start in 20, uh, 2009 that you have not yet completed? Okay, so I went back and looked through my emails from 2009. And this we're talking about – were we talking about January 2009, about that time? Is that around when this whole thing started? Uh, sure. Yeah, fair enough. And And this was – uh, this was the the golden age of Pete on OKCupid. Okay <laughs> was two thousand nine. Nice. There are there are so many. I must have come back from some sort of Christmas vacation and just gone crazy because I'm looking through here and there's just there's so many insipid and just awful OKCupid okay message chains. Like I'm making an effort. I'm really trying, but like looking at it, it's just like so obvious that none of these were going to work, and they're so stupid. Uh, I, one that jumps out at me right away, uh, that really jumps out at me right away, is the one where I started a conversation with a young woman uh, about uh, reading Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers, which nah. I got. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yep. Yep. So I believe I got Outliers for Christmas at the end of 2008, I'm thinking, and I'm also thinking that I still haven't finished reading it. So that's one thing. <laughs> So reading all the reading of the various insipid books that I try to impress women with on OKCupid, I'm not interested in going back and talking to to like whoever she is. Although maybe we should censor that just in case she's a real. Actually, can we censor that just in case she's a real? Someone can actually Google that and find out who she is. But uh, no, that's not even her. That's just I'm just like looking. That's like one of the many many awful conversations. So yeah. So my fake answer, I guess, or my, my answer to the question is reading Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, so that I can at least pretend to not be a total fraud. Uh, these five years later, uh, although I did find one interesting email, and, and I wanted to share this because I thought it was legit cool. Apparently, in on January twenty first, two thousand nine, my good friend Jay Constantino. I used to do lots of improv shows with him. He's out in Portland now. Uh, you know, he's done the Portlandia thing. He sent an email. 
email that I forwarded to myself. I thought it was so good that I sent it to myself so that I wouldn't forget it. And it was a suggestion um, that he he was having a party where people were bringing their favorite book passages, short essays, and other literary passages. Uh, People would gather and eat food and drink wine and deliver uh, readings of their favorite passages from books and stories to each other. Uh, And it just sounded like a really cool thing. And so I think that I I really thought that in late January of 2009, this was something that I was going to go do. uh, And having not done it yet, perhaps it's something that I can do in the future. With my girlfriend, who I didn't meet on OkCupid, nothing against OkCupid. That's more against me and my functioning on OkCupid, where the search for approval and and, uh, and, uh, I guess what, like validation was far more important than the pursuit of companionship in a meaningful way. So there you go. That's interesting. We did the uh, the uh, internet dating overthinking it podcast uh, a while a while back. I mean, I have a profile on on OKCupid, and I from back when before my longtime girlfriend and I met. Uh, I have not yet deleted it. My, not not because I'm trying to like keep that fire burning, just because like I'm not sure I know the password anymore. Um, it would be very difficult. Though I wonder if someone is is you know if someone is messaging me, looking at at pictures of me from from the last decade and and. <laughs> and saying, look at that person with a flat hairline and, you know, who is, uh, looks like he's a reasonable weight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Man, I just, I apologize so deeply to all of the poor people who I dealt with, like, in a stupid manner when I was 29 and in, just in my 20s in general. Oh, my God. I didn't, I didn't ever have the, the fortitude, the intestinal fortitude to um, uh, message anybody on, on OkCupid. I sort of waited for the messages to come in, which is the, the you know, strictly dominated strategy <laughs> if you're a guy on a dating site. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have a lot of, uh, didn't have a lot of success in that, in that department in online dating at all. Fair enough. Well, the world is a, it's a bright new tomorrow and there's, <laughs> there's more people to answer this question. So we can stop talking. Thank, it embarrasses me so thank much. goodness. Uh, Shannon Wolofsky, he- Hello. Welcome. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. What did you start in 2009? Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Um, I was just thinking because it was the Doctor Who Christmas special on, when was it? Christmas, actually. Um, And I didn't watch it because I forgot it was on because how would I remember that date? Um, That I think in 2009 was the year that I started watching Doctor Who, um, starting with the uh, Chris Eccleston uh, series and then going on to the David Tennant. And um, I gave up after uh, the first Matt Smith season, which I kind of liked, but um, if you've seen on the overthinking it website audience um i sort of didn't uh love that season or the later season so i gave up um i saw the first episode um of the peter capaldi season uh that uh started this year but i i haven't finished it so but i did watch the thick of it and in the loop which peter capaldi is in and i recommend it to anyone who wants to um hate humankind um because it's an extremely cynical look at the political system um in the united kingdom but you know it is completely universal but anyway i'm just going to assume that that character and the doctor and the current iteration of doctor who are the same person because why wouldn't 
they be? So he's probably just, you know, cursing for just hours in the most, uh, you know, eloquent way possible, uh, you know, to whatever the Slovene or um, what are those creatures that live? Uh, they're like those reptilian creatures that live under the Earth's surface. I don't remember. But in any event, I have not watched Doctor Who since then, even though I really liked it at the time. And uh, I assume it's still going strong. Uh, have you guys watched it? I, I didn't see this year's. Doctor Who? Yep. Doctor Who this year was awesome. I love Doctor Who this year. So I should go back and finish it, is what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you need to watch everything that happened between then and now, because that it, it, some of it's really good. But I thought that I thought you would really, I think you would really be compelled by this year of Doctor Who. Uh, I thought I it do was love Peter Capaldi. I'll give you that. All right, yeah, so maybe definitely. I will go back and uh, pull a Stokes, which I believe is is the term that we will all use from now on, which is you know get back to it a few years later <laughs> when no, when no one's looking. When people aren't paying attention anymore, and then when I watch it, people will be like, "Oh my god, this is the best thing ever!" Right? And the the right. Uh, the um, and you'll fix the current season of Doctor Who as you fix season five and and other seasons. Well, of course. Like, why would anyone watch an actual season of television without saying, hey, Shana, how would you rewrite this entire thing? Because obviously the people who do this for a living can't do it well enough. So we're going to ask this person on the Internet to fix it. You know, so, of course, I'm there for you guys. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, good. Well, that's uh, that's a great thing to look forward to. We'll put uh, we'll put links to Shana's fixing doctor. 10,000 words or more, of course. (laughs) Boom. Well, that's the stand. And it's a high bar to clear. I mean, I feel like Jordan didn't do us any favors with that. It's sort of like Ben in his dress uniform, dipping his wife and and, uh, (laughs) planting one on her in the middle of a wedding, right? Like, it's not really fair to us mortals. Um, The the 10,000 word standard is not really really one that I can complete because I can't even move completely. What I did in 2009 was move from Connecticut to Los Angeles. And I uh, still have boxes that I haven't unpacked. So what I what I did uh, in 2009, what I began that I have not yet completed was unpacking from my cross-country move. And let me explain, because this is not just like, oh, some apartments, uh, some apartment, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a closet in my apartment that my boxes are shoved into, and I haven't unpacked those boxes that still live in that closet. No, when I came to Los Angeles, I came a year before my girlfriend did because she was going to move with me, but she was finishing something up in New York. So we kind of leapfrogged and we ended up together in Los Angeles, but I didn't need uh, a large apartment. You know, I didn't need two bathrooms and, you know, a a luxury that we now enjoy and that I think is responsible for any sort of peaceful, uh, you know, stretches of our relationship is really due to the two bathrooms that we, that we share. I mean, that we don't share, and not sharing is really the point of those two <laughs> bathrooms. But, uh, but I didn't need that at the time, and I had, a whole, I had a whole year where, you know, paying rent for something like that would have just been silliness. So I lived in, uh, in the same building in a different one-bedroom apartment, and then when she came, it just so happened that a great two-bedroom opened in the same building. So I carried unopened boxes from one apartment to the other apartment in the same apartment building uh, that I still have not unpacked and (laughs) 
<laughs> disposed of the contents of. Um, I'm actually they're they're here in the second bedroom, which we use as an office. I'm actually looking at them uh, in the closet. The closet door is open, and I'm looking into the box of of you know college memorabilia and stuff. It's it's just odds and sods, right? It's nothing crucial uh, because the crucial stuff all, of course, gets unpacked. Um, the other thing that that never got unpacked since 2009 is the box of very warm sweaters that I needed living in the the Northeast because it was, you know, there were things like winters, they were cold, and I have not <laughs> cracked open that box of sweaters since I showed up in Los Angeles in Jani- July 2009. Um, I should probably just take the whole thing unopened to the Goodwill and... Uh, and donate it because, um, you know, no, no reason to use it here on the bleeding edge of America. Anyway, so unpacking, unpacking from a move is the thing that I started five years ago and, and is still not done. So, so what you're saying is that if people were previously emailing the site asking when the Cowboy Bebop was going to be finished, they should now just start asking when those boxes are going to get unpacked? I was <laughs> so glad when we published the – when it became clear that we would publish the – uh, the final installment in the overthinking it uh, overthinking cowboy bebop series though not not the final uh though maybe the final blog post not the final um you know piece of writing about overthinking it cowboy bebop so don't uh you know don't despair uh beboppians beboppers hipsters i don't know what space do you call cow- space cowboys right. that yeah. A- yeah that's good well some people call me space cowboy but the uh, you know don't don't despair. There might be more. There might be more coming your way. But um, yeah, uh, not a month went by. Actually, there was a period where hardly a week went by without some uh, nice person <laughs> emailing <laughs> us and saying, quite reasonably, I might add, uh, hey. I just started watching Cowboy Bebop. I found the Overthinking a Cowboy Bebop series online. It's great. It's been two years. When is the next one coming out? It's been two and a half years. When is the next one coming out? It's been three years, three and a half years. When is the next one coming out? Right. And, and, uh, I would, you know, eventually I just started passive aggressively forwarding these to Jordan <laughs> and adding above the forward fan mail. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember recently, though, I brought it up to you, Matt, and just the, I don't know, the groan that you gave me, just it didn't come from your gut. It came from like your toes, like, how dare you ask me this, Shana? Uh, and I felt so guilty afterwards. But you know what? Now we have a post. So I'm going to say that it was my doing. So no, it wasn't, you're welcome, world. No, there, was, there was nothing. I wasn't, I wasn't groaning at you. I was groaning. Oh, no, I no. was groaning at the futility of existence. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, listen, before we dive into some overthinking, uh, I have an announcement to make about this podcast, um, and, and uh, it's an exciting announcement. We uh, have been working quietly and behind the scenes for most of the last year to find a podcast network partner uh, who had an ad sales department who was interested in the Overthinking It um, family of podcasts. There are four right now, the Overthinking It podcast, the TFT podcast, which is about pop and indie music, the uh, book club and the TV recaps podcast, where we look at shows like uh, Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones and Mad Men 
Lynn and Downton Abbey. Uh, Downton Abbey returning to American television in January, so you can expect some new uh, some new recaps of Downton Abbey coming in the new year, which is very exciting. Um, a partner who wanted to sell ads for the podcasts, um, because we, uh, you know, great overthinkers though we are, we're not great salespeople. We don't really have a sales department here in the, uh, here in the overthinking, the OTI dome. And, uh, you know, it would make the whole enterprise a little more sustainable if we could compensate ourselves for the time that we, uh, you know, that we spend doing some of the things that we do on the site. When we started overthinking it, it was before 2009. It was, in fact, 2008, which is before 2009. And uh, we were all younger then. We had more time than we have now. And we, ha- we didn't have things like families and, uh, you know, children and permanent commitments and, and stuff that we, uh, you know, <laughs> responsible jobs. By and large, and uh, you know now now we have those I have things. None of those things. <laughs> Sorry, go on. It's okay. Me neither. You and I are the ones, Shana. We should take engagement photos together. <laughs> I'd love to, Matt. <laughs> But they should be like ironic engagement photos. They should be like you know you typing on your computer while I while I do a, a big stack of dishes in the thing and and look angrily you know at you and then you know I I don't know what what would be the just the biggest travesty of engagement photos that you and I could that you and I could do together. I mean, aren't engagement photos themselves travesties? No, I, I, many <laughs> of my, many of my hard. lovely friends, like my lovely friend Ben Adams, took engagement photos. Well, I wasn't and I'm sure they're very nice. Now, now I'm friends with you, Ben Adams. You better, you better accept my friendship, or we're not friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, right? Facebook pretty, is the arbiter of these things. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it involves you guys and a copy of Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're we're the outliers in in that Shane and I don't have these things, but a lot of the overthinkers do, and and I feel worse and worse asking for their time, frankly, well, to do things like run a website or have a podcast. Anyway, what I uh, the the announcement that that we have to make is that after after a long search that involved things like me going to Austin, Texas, and having a meeting with a podcast network down there uh, from Austin, Texas, you can probably guess which one it is. Um, from uh, you know a lot of cold emailing, a lot of meetings, and things like this, we've actually partnered with a podcast network called Podcast One. You can see them at podcastone.com, and when you go, you'll see that it's an incredible stroke of luck for overthinking it. Uh, they have podcasts uh, on their network or they sell the ads for their the technology provider for in their, in their family, in the, the general family that we are joining is the entire set of Adam Carolla podcasts. And that guy is moderately successful online <laughs> with his podcast network. Um, all the WWE wrestlers who have podcasts uh, tend to have them through, uh, through this network. Snooki's podcast is on this network. Snap. Boom. And uh, after a, a set of meetings in their pretty swanky Beverly Hills offices, uh, meetings in which I met Goldberg and Di- Diamond Dallas Page, like I was, I was starstruck <laughs> at this. Uh, I, I, I thought we were small potatoes, right? Like um, they have agreed to take over thinking it uh, onto their network because they uh, realize the potential of the great thing that we have going here. And uh, so um, we're going to be joining the podcast one network in 2015 
Um, what does this mean for you? Well, nothing much. You're still going to get a podcast every week. It's going to come out on the same day that it's always come out. Um, it will be at the same feed, so you don't have to like resubscribe. Oh, goodness, what a disaster that would be. Um, it, should, uh, it should all work seamlessly, and I'm working with their, their tech team there to uh, make sure that that happens. Um, the content of the shows will remain unchanged. It'll be overthinking, or <laughs> overthinking uh, galore um, from here to eternity. Uh, soon, <laughs> very soon, I hope, um, we will uh, begin to have ads on the site which is something that you will be familiar with from a lot of the podcasts that you listen to. Um, they will probably be for a lot of the usual suspects from the podcast that you listen to. Uh, though I don't want to say any of them for fear of, of uh, giving them why – why, why would they buy the cow when they can get the milk for free? You know, And I don't want to, to give them any endorsement before we're being paid to do it. Uh, you'll know when we're doing ads. Uh, the whole thing will be done in, uh, you know, in a pretty standard way. And I'm, I'm very excited about this because it will give us uh, some resources and w- that we can reinvest into the site and we can reinvest into the podcast and we can reinvest into um, doing the things that we do. So uh, that's, um, that's what's on the horizon in 2015 for the Overthinking It podcast. We're, we're really excited uh, about the opportunities that this prevent, uh, presents for us. I nearly said prevents for us. It's clear. I, I, uh, this, um, this sound is the ice cube in my empty old-fashioned glass that, that I filled for myself before the podcast I was going to say, began. sounds like Don Draper there. <laughs> so, I'm, yeah. I may have to do an intervention at some point with all the drinking that's been kicking into gear on this podcast lately. I did like, the, uh, yeah. I not did mad, the... Matt. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, w- I went the full Draper for this particular podcast. So, hey, that's, uh, that's great news. We're, we're very excited. It's a work in progress for all of us. We've never done anything like this before. So, uh, you know, uh, what you can count on is that, is that we will, um, keep you apprised of everything that's, that's going on and you will get your overthinking a podcast like you've always gotten. Matt, I have a transition. You want to hear it? Go for it. Wait, 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 wait. I want to do, uh, uh, we're, we're before, before we pivot to the thing that you pivot to, we're going to pivot to a different thing first. Okay. Well, (laughs) putting a pin in that, but but later. Um, so speaking of being excited and a little bit scared, go on (laughs) into the woods was adapted into, uh, (laughs) I was like, speaking of people who have grand designs and potentially make mistakes, yeah. <laughs> Into the Woods came out in theaters. No, it was adapted into it was adapted into a film uh, a film musical that was released on Christmas Day. Um, I know I know Pete and I saw it, and I want to. I mean, I really want to talk about Into the Woods. I, as a present in uh, when I was in like fifth or sixth grade, got a cassette tape of the cast recording of Into the Woods that I wore out by playing it so much. Uh, I can recite Into the Woods, at least the cast recording of Into the Woods from memory. And when they did the PBS uh, film of it, I got that and have watched that a bunch of a bunch of times. So, so like I can say Into the Woods from the beginning to the end. Um, Right joined, now? Well, <laughs> that's not what we're going to spend the rest of. Once the, upon a time. Dunk, 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 dunk. I wish. 
the you know so I have like a great deal of devotion and love for this uh, for this musical for the songs for some of the performers who were in the original Broadway cast and um, you know and so I was among the people who were a little who were as Little Red Riding Hood says in her song uh, excited and scared you know but Pete you saw this and you are a, you are a musical theater aficionado like myself what did you think of the Into the Woods show? I, I liked it a lot. I liked the musical. I also love the musical. We, uh, they did it at my high school. I didn't get to be in it, which was heartbreaking because my family was on vacation. It was a summer play. Um, but they've done it at my high school twice, and I, I love the show. It's a great show, and I thought the adaptation was pretty good. I think, I think that my uh, the sort of objections that I would have to it are more along the lines of like things that I felt would make it more exciting or better or like missed opportunities, but I don't think that what was left was – unenjoyable or bad you know right. I, I I, and it's it's really interesting because i have the same impulse like i want to jump in with you know with complaints about it right and i yeah. i feel like that that doesn't do justice to my experience that i had watching it which was overwhelmingly positive right 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 exactly yeah i mean i, mean, I think that like uh there are definitely issues i would say that overall i thought that the les miserables adaptation was stronger as an adaptation and as a movie um the one from last year than into the woods was this year but i still really enjoyed the the, the into the woods movie and and everybody was moved and even my my i went to see it with some of my sisters and you know the ones one who had loved the musical and knew all the words loved it and the one who didn't love know the musical at all and had never heard it before also loved it so uh yeah no i think it was i think it was good I, I definitely thought that the best part was chris pine in terms of like things that happened in this movie that were much better than i expected right and that felt like they sort of expanded the scope of where this musical has been and where it can go i felt like not necessarily chris pine personally but like the staging of the chris pine scenes and the and the way that the chris pine scenes went and uh i thought that part was was really compellingly good uh and some of the other stuff felt like the material was a little bigger than the adaptation was had the courage to be or at least the resources or something or just the vision i'm not sure i mean but i did like it um yeah it's fun i mean it's funny because one of the things that you can do with a film adaptation of a musical like this is you can really um bring to life the fantastical elements of the fairy tales you yeah. know the beanstalk growing out of the of the ground for example right or um you know i don't know the beans sort of exploding on the, the yeah the, the, the little puffs you know? of fire were a cool little element yeah yeah absolutely and they're they're they were in the musical as just like uh as just sparks as just just a like uh, a strobe light or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, so a couple of things that people were worried about was, uh, you know, were uh, the cut, right? And and what would be cut? And you have to cut a lot because the first act of the show is like ninety minutes long. Um, yeah. And by the way, it ends on the most persuasive happy ever after you've ever seen um and and uh i guess i gather that like middle schools or something performed the first act of into the woods as <laughs> as though it were entire unto itself and the second act where literally everything goes wrong where like everybody spoiler alert everybody dies right but it's more it's more existential than like particular characters die it's more like everybody dies everybody dies in the sense that like we're mortal you know yeah uh, i mean it's, it's kierkegaard speaks of the moment wherein you begin to live in the knowledge of mortality and for some it is delayed you know and they come upon it through sickness later in life uh for some of them it happens earlier in life all right into the woods it happens at the end of the first act and after the end of the first act you know mortality is a is a uh is a presence for for everybody, right? Like, uh, 
and just you know the end of all things and, and all that stuff. And there, I mean, so there are complaints. There are complaints that I could make, right? Like aside from the fact that, like you know, people who uh, the people who were in it were great. Meryl Streep, of course, was fantastic. Like Meryl Streep made me cry more than once uh, in watching this movie. Um, even though they they uh, changed some of the melodies for her, right? Because Meryl Streep isn't Bernadette Peters and is not a singer first, you know, first and foremost, or isn't a, a sort of Broadway Broadway uh, you know caliber singer. And it was mostly mostly in high notes, but but in terms of of power, right? Like in Stay with Me, when Meryl Streep says, uh, "Who out there could love you more than I? What out there that I could not supply?" Uh, and it you know it's sw- it switches from this very sweet register into this kind of vindictive belt. Um, it was wrenching. It, I mean, she was really good. Uh, Anna Kendrick was good. I didn't love the rewrites of Steps of the Palace, but she delivered it well. Um, uh, Lilla Crawford was a good performer, I think badly directed, but but was sort of her song was passable. Uh, Daniel Huddlestone as Jack singing Giants in the Sky was fantastic and the sort of the sense of awe and excitement and the sense of sort of um the sense of sort of knowledge of growing up that that happens in that song uh there are big tall terrible awesome scary wonderful giants in the sky um like landed uh really stuck that landing um you know, really, really wonderful. I, I, the complaints that I have, I kind of lay at the at the feet of a, a sort of failure of imagination on the part of of Rob Marshall, the director. Uh, yeah. You know who who does? I mean, it sort of creates mini stage sets and has the has the characters uh inhabit them right kind of walk around them you yeah. know whether it's the tree and giants in the sky um or whether it's the kind of frozen moment in time a really good idea kind of not executed to to best effect i think in the cinderella song steps of the palace um you know uh, th- there also like there were moments of uh, where he should have kind of restrained certain of the performances, right? Like if I had a dollar for every time a character pointed at the, at the other actor uh, when saying you, or pointed at themselves <laughs> when saying me, you know, or like did a did a little uh, back and forth gesture when saying us, <laughs> you know, um, I, I wouldn't have had to pay for the ticket. In fact, the theater might have owed me money if I got a dollar for each time that that happened in the movie, and that. that that ought to have been restrained, right? Because you can't do stuff at the same, the same, the same scale. Um, I I saw uh, recently a couple weeks ago the origin the uh, Shakespeare Festival Oregon Shakespeare Festival production of Into the Woods, which came to L.A. Um, and I think this compared favorably to that, but it had a little bit of the same problem, which which was like a, a sort of busyness, right? A need to kind of load up the material with uh, indicating and with. Um, you know, uh, kind of naturalizing and stuff that that you just don't need to do with this material because this material is great, and no matter how good you are as a performer, this material is uh, you know can meet you, and uh, all you have to do is kind of stand still and stand still and do the material, and it and it will work. And so a lot of this like. You know, Emily Blunt kind of walking around the kind of pacing around the forest, Anna Kendrick kind of pacing around the stairs, um, 
you know, uh, Meryl Streep kind of pacing around the room, Johnny Depp kind of pacing around the 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 forest. I don't know. Is sort of uh, not super imaginative yeah. directorially. That said, everyone sang pretty well. Like you know, I missed. Uh, I missed um, the the baker's wife's first act song mostly because it contains after they've deceived Jack by giving him the beans and claiming their magic, uh, which they don't know is true. They think is a lie. Uh, the, the baker's wife says to her husband, "If the end is right, it justifies the beans," mm. and that's you know, I mean, that's just such a. a triumphant triumphant moment i was sad to see it go i was sad to see the act one closer or the second act opener go but you know uh, but look i mean they cut it for time and it it went well i sorry Pete, you you go i i could talk about this forever <laughs> because i could i could like uh you know i don't because i can I'm just quote excited it we can go solo for longer about into the woods than about our ad network which was <laughs> two long solo segments for the most part uh and that's hard for me to say because i love solo segments i know and i hog time like nobody else i mean the basic the basic fact agony yeah. see i love that see that is the scene that i felt like was the one that was closest to what i wanted to see from this musical and for those of you who haven't don't know the musical at all let's pull it i'll pull it back for you and contextualize it for you a little bit it's a musical about a bunch of different characters from fairy tales who all end up going into this magical forest or whatever all at the same time on different missions and end up interacting in various unexpected ways and there's one magical spell that unites all of them um they are all really iconic characters that you know from fairy tales. There's Cinderella, there's Little Red Riding Hood, right? Jack the Giant Killer or whatnot. Um, because they are all super iconic characters that you've already seen before, they're also all wearing ridiculous costumes, right? Little Red Riding Hood is like Little Red Riding Hood. There's Prince Charming. There's two princes. There's Prince. There's Rapunzel's prince, and then there's the, the Cinderella's prince, right? And they, they're, they're very dashing and all this stuff. Um, so the, the, the show in general is very conscious of the constraints, I feel, of a theatrical musical which is that you need to like make a big entrance and make a big impression on a small stage for the most part even if the stage is big it's still a confined space and i felt like one of the things that's convenient and kind of meta theatrical and fun about this musical is that all the characters keep running into each other for reasons that are not really important right well mostly just at random like a character will go this way and a character will go that way and they're all in the woods together and they eventually bump together uh, into each other on stage and i feel like that sort of plays off the idea that they're all in the theater right like they're all in the theater they're all in the space you know that they're not leaving like eventually they all have to run into each other and and in a, in a stage that intuitively makes sense. We've seen these two people meet. We've seen these two people meet. Oh, now those two people are going to meet because they're all kind of in the same general area, which is about the size of, of a stage and a half, right? Because they're either on the wings or they're on stage. The issue is in the movie, it's an actual big forest, right? There's like giant swooping shots of this big forest. And uh, because of this, there's no pressure for the characters to really meet each other or to be in, in the same place at the same time. And also, I feel like there's more anxiety that there needs to be that you don't know who these characters are or what they want, uh, right? And, and that's kind of silly because they're well-known fairy tale characters, and that's kind of the whole point. And they start out the movie and the musical by telling you in very explicit terms exactly what they want and who they are. And by the way, they don't, they don't have names, right? They're named yeah. by their Little Red Riding Hood. I guess Cinderella and Jack have names. But everyone else is Little Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel's Prince, Cinderella's Prince, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. and the two invented characters are called the baker and the baker's wife. 
Right, right, right. Exactly. And so, like, and it all takes place instead of on, like, a stage with trees on it, it takes place in, like, a Fellowship of the Ring forest, right? Where it's, like, all dark greens and it's all very windy and very mysterious and it seems to expand forever in every direction. Um, be- and I felt like because of this, there just, there was very difficult to sort of justify. Or the, the, the meetings of the characters didn't feel like to me that they met with sufficient kind of energy and sufficient kind of um, joy and purpose, right? Or sufficient sort of storytelling inertia. It felt like the characters were kind of looking around, looking around. Oh, there that person is, right? Like, or we have to believe that Emily Blunt's character is like a master assassin tracker person because she's able to track down Cinderella in the dark in the middle of the woods, like on multiple nights in a row, right? Whereas on stage, you never think of that because it's on stage and they don't have to go far, right? It's easy to catch this person because they're they're 20 feet away from you um and, and i felt like the agony scene where chris pine and the other guy or the prince is singing was staged on like a waterfall where they were they were kind of standing on the waterfall as if the waterfall were a stage and they would kind of run up and down the stones of the waterfall and they would pose on the waterfall in very self-deprecating but also very like uh cheesecake sorts of ways right and that's kind of what they do as princes that's their job in the story and i felt like that really solved the issue of like why are these people together what are they doing in this space, right? Like, yes, everybody's in the woods, and the woods is a place of mystery, and it's a place of danger, and that's the whole point, is these characters are being exposed to real-life sorts of emotional and personal dangers. It's like, oh, oh what happened if a bunch of fairy tale characters were having serious trouble in their marriage? Right? Like, and, like, what if they had difficulty conceiving a child for real, as opposed to how it's communicated in the fairy tale? How would they feel about it? What would they say, right? Um, and uh, it, just, it just feels like most of it is just... Um, it's just it's they get they go into the woods and they and it gets it, they get lost right they they they, uh, they might they should given the size and scope of the woods they should get more lost than they do and in productions of Into the Woods that I've seen and liked the woods have been smaller and easier to navigate <laughs> um, and also Bernadette Peters should have been in this movie well <laughs> what, uh, yeah I mean from a certain point know. of view Bernadette Peters should be in every movie that's but- true. The Equalizer is coming out on DVD this week. Bernadette <laughs> Peters played the Denzel Washington character. <laughs> Absolutely. The Equalizer. You know that there are certain things about a man that never change. You know, a dog can't change his spots. He has to always be a dog. Um, <laughs> I thought it's a terrible – that's the worst Bernadette Peters impression that anyone's ever attempted. Let me uh, – so I, I, and just let me close this because this is, this yeah. is probably the least, uh, <laughs> the least general audience of our, of our topics tonight. We'll, we'll get on to cereal and uh, we can go a little longer to talk about cereal because there's a lot to talk about. Um, the uh, the um, the thing about Into the Woods that's that's always called out and and was called out in every review I read is the sense of ambivalence that that pervades the lyrics um, at the end of Little Red Riding Hood's song when uh, when she talks about her encounter with the the woods which is sort of figured in the story as like sexual initiation uh, but also sort of not normal sort of predatory and and gross um, she says. Uh, after having had this like experience of being you know devoured by the wolf uh, and then coming out um, the other side of the experience, she says uh, isn 't it nice to know a lot and a little bit not you know and she talks about feeling excited and scared um, and it's it's you sort of need Sondheim to do this right like because because musical theater is is a um, 
musical theater is a mode that rewards certainty, that rewards sort of black and white thinking, right? Like they call me a cockeyed optimist, uh, Nelly in, in South Pacific. Or, um, oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. And uh, June is sort of here. <laughs> right. June is, June is like, you know, creeping along in some yeah. locations. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, partly probably due, partly probably due to his being the spiritual heir of Oscar Hammerstein and partly um due to to his own unique gifts Stephen Sondheim is a master of of conveying ambivalence in the, a musical theater song which is which is amazing and is so you know um and is so needed right like it's it's amazing to think about into the woods in that time and in this time right because it it seems like you know the internet gives us quicker judgments gives us quicker either you know win or fail you know which is another way of saying happy ever after or else you know they died horribly <laughs> right like um and this like is in the game of thrones you win or you die there is no middle ground yeah and and uh and on the internet it's it's hashtag win or hashtag fail right um you're either you're either with us or with the terrorists you know you're either you're either black or you're white um and in into the woods the baker's wife uh says is it either always less or more either plain or grand is it always or is it never and and the 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 incredible strength of this musical and why I think it's it's really a piece for our time, for our particular cultural moment, um, you know, is that it says uh, it says that like, well, yes and no. A lot of life's a lot of life's questions. The answer to them is is yes and no. Yes, that's right. And that's wrong. You know, they're debating the morality of, of, uh, trying to kill the giant who's wreaking havoc at the end. And, and, and um, you know, uh, uh, little red riding hood says to Cinderella, right? Like it, the giant's a person, right? Like, isn't, isn't this wrong? Isn't this thing that we're doing wrong? Cinderella, Cinderella says, yes, no, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and the answer, believe it or not, in the, the, song No One Is Alone is a great flowering of empathy and fellow feeling about which the less said the better. So, uh, speaking, um, speaking of a, of a tangled, more, tangled morass of truth and lies. Um, I know a great musical you should watch called Frozen that has a great song that maybe you should listen to a couple times, Matt. <laughs> but let's move on from that right now into something else. Is it... Uh, uh, is it the song about building a snowman? Because I thought yes, that was a really good song. about building a snowman. It's definitely a song about building a snowman. Let's move on. Let's move on to the reason why we have Ben and Shane on the podcast, which is other than just how much we love their company. Right. I, I have. Yeah, I love their company. I don't know what you you know what you think the. Uh, the instrumental benefits of it are, Pete, but... Well, I, I will never testify to them in a court of law, that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> Speaking of a, of a tangled morass of narratives, of truths and half-truths, of uh, piecing out truth from lie... Um, the serial podcast ended its run recently. It was uh, fantastically successful by the standards of podcast and also captured a sort of cultural zeitgeist. And uh, Ben and Shana listened to the whole thing, as did you, Pete. Um, I, I have started it. I haven't finished yet. But spoiler alert for, you know, anything that happens in serial. Um, we want to... Um, 
we want to talk about it, but it's it's unclear what to talk about, right? Like, I guess the question of serial is, did this person commit this crime? But um, but let me ask you, Ben. Like, what do you think is the most interesting question in serial? Because it it can't be just you know, did he do it? Uh, there's got to be there's got to be more to it than that for the purposes of overthinking it. Um, what are you left asking yourself, having listened to the whole run of this series? Well, I mean, I'll, for, I'll take a little bit. Of, I mean, I think the most interesting question is kind of, did he do it just from a, but it, that for our purposes, it's maybe not the most interesting just because it's, it, it's almost unanswerable unless you get more evidence. Uh, but uh, I think the, to me, at least what I've been most interested in is probably because I'm in law school now is what this podcast is kind of showing people about the legal system and the way we do trials and the way we try to get at truth through this adversarial process that's supposed to be really, really good. But this podcast is kind of, you know, showing the holes in that theory. I, I joked a few weeks ago that uh, we, we need to, instead of trial by combat, we just need trial by serial where Sarah Koenig uh, investigates crimes and produces eight podcasts. And then the American public votes on the guilt of the, uh, the accused. Cause it, you know, it's, it's not a terrible way of getting at the truth. As with trial by combat, can you choose your podcaster? Yeah, that'd be perfect. Like you, you select your champion, like, you know, Ira Glass or, uh, you know, <laughs> Adam Carolla, if you if you really want to roll the dice. <laughs> Uh, Shana, you you uh, have have uh, heard all of of serial. What are you left asking yourself now that now that all the questions are supposedly answered? Well, obviously they're not. Um, but yesterday I had finished listening to it, um, and I know that there's a lot of discussion on the internet about whether we're allowed to be entertained by this or not. Um, you know, cause it is a real crime, uh, podcast and I've never been into the real crime. You know, I don't watch Dateline or anything like that, but for whatever reason, the serial podcast is just really compelling. And a lot of people on the internet were like, oh, I'm listening to it because I, it's a good piece of reporting. And I want to know about the failures of our judicial system, blah, blah, blah. And, but there was part of me that was just sort of screaming at them. Yeah, but it is entertaining, isn't it? And am I wrong to think that? Like, I wouldn't be listening to it if I didn't feel intrigued by it. And the way that Sarah Koenig, you know, constructed the narrative was like a murder mystery. Um, and, our, you know, I went on Reddit, which, you know, I, I never do, but I was, I was compelled by this, Matt. Um, and you had um, an AMA by... Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Adnan's best friend from when he was a kid. Um, there was the brother of uh, Hay, who was the young woman who was killed, unfortunately, and he was on um, telling people that he felt like um, everyone was treating them sort of as a sideshow and that everyone had to realize that she was a real person. It was a tragedy and all the terrible things that his family went through and that uh, people were losing that. And that's a really important thing to, you know, get a handle on because this isn't a work of fiction. That said, you know, it is meant to be something that I don't want to say we enjoy, but that we feel that is enough of a narrative that it gets at something in like the, I don't know, the part of the human brain that wants to know the answer to a mystery, this, um, and I don't know how to put it, but it is a little 
amoral in a sense. You know, I, I am very interested in the morality of being an audience member to Serial. And I think to a certain extent, Sarah Koenig is as well. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Let me let me, let me take up the the first question you, you you asked there about are you allowed to be entertained? I guess my thought is yes. That you know, sure, of course, you want to keep in mind that this is a real event, and we we can talk about kind of how that changes your your listening experience. But like, if you want to learn about the criminal justice system in a non entertaining way, like I have a criminal procedure textbook for you. Exactly. Um, but you know, people are people. And if you want people to learn about the way the justice system works, if you want people to care about a story of a potentially wrongfully imprisoned person, uh, you're going to need to package it in some way that is not boring, that that it gets people's attention, holds people's attention, and tells some sort of coherent story that people can put emotions into. And that's that's entertainment. That's what we do with, you know, any other story. So I think, you know, to, to say you shouldn't be entertained by these stories is kind of expecting people to be automatons that will, well, they'll learn everything they need to know without being entertained by the stories that, that they're going to need to know to get this information. Um, and as far as the, the second thing you said with, uh, you know, the fact that the, the podcast certainly doesn't pay very much attention to the victim of the crime, to, to me at least is almost, not almost, I think it is a a positive of the podcast because I mean, a, of course it's clear that the, the family of Heyman Lee have no interest whatsoever in participating in this podcast. So to to some extent, it's simply keeping with the wishes of the the people that are, you know, kind of closest to that particular situation. Uh, But second of all, there are plenty of places to go where you can get outrage commentary about female high school murder victims of murder. That's very sad. And this is something that Matt, Matt, I know you've talked about the, the kind of the SVU effect of the lurid drama of the lurid allure of, you know, victims of murder in the way that that's not really helpful or kind of healthy for society to be fixated I, on. I have a, I have an indelicate phrase by which I refer to it, which in this particular connection, I don't wish to rehearse. Right. <laughs> uh, exactly. And that, because it's there's a real victim here. But I think there there is always a risk that if this podcast became all about the lurid details of the crime and the family life of the victim and her history of dating and boys, it would potentially get into an area that this this into a project that this podcast isn't is very studiously trying to avoid, I think, to its credit. I mean, on the other hand, if you wanted to take the other perspective, you could say that the problem is with serial killers or any other killers uh, that people complain that we focus too much on the perpetrator of the crime. And especially if they're sort of a psychopath. And the question in this uh, podcast of serial is, is this guy a psychopath Um, that they want the attention and if we're focusing on them more than the victim, are they just getting what they want? And are they becoming, you know, celebrities in a way? Um, and are we giving them so, some sort of glory that they wanted or um, that we shouldn't be giving them at all? Yeah, that, that's also the case. I think – so it's interesting that in particular in this case, the person who talks the most to Sarah Koenig is, uh, is Adnan, right? Adnan. Is the one who talks the most to Sarah Koenig. Most of the podcast gets focused on him, and when you're talk and when you're talking about, I mean, a lot of it does because he's the one where they have the most information. But when you talk about the family, 
not wanting to talk to Sarah Koenig, I think it shows kind of a truth about the modern information economy, which is that you really don't have the option of no one telling your story. You're either, you either need to get out there and tell your story yourself, or you should become comfortable with sitting back and letting other people tell your story, because somebody's going to tell your story. We just don't live in a world where the individual stories of people don't get told anymore. It's not a question of like, well, we shouldn't talk about this because it's not, it's not appropriate. And I know we've – I don't want to revisit our old conversations about private information, but now we're talking about public information. We're talking about like stuff that happened out in front of everybody, and everybody is aware of it, right? And it's, and it's totally out there. And then there's a quest of like, how about nobody ever talk about this? And it's like then Twitter, Facebook, that's not going to happen, right? And I think that, that when you're considering modern media strategy, right, modern like PR, really just irrevocably tied to this idea that you need to get out there and tell your own story or else somebody else is going to do it for you. And, and so I think that maybe if, if Hayes' brother, you know, with all due respect for his incredibly difficult situation, if he really doesn't like the way the podcast is depicting his family, he needs to get involved in the podcast. It's the only thing that he could really expect to, to change it. Because, um, I, I mean, I don't think that you could, you could expect nobody to ever talk about the situation. And you're, you not saying I mean? that, you're not saying that he needs to do X. He's, you're saying that, that doing X is the only available means to the end that, that he claims yeah. to want. Like, like if, he, if he's upset that his family is not being represented in the way that he wants them to be represented, then the best – I feel like the best and easiest remedy he would have is to participate in the podcast and to get his input involved. You know? And I, I feel like it would been – he would have been welcome, you know? I think, unless he's kind of – unless – the other thing is that a lot of these people that we sort of hear from peripherally could be – not reliable sources and could themselves be really upset or have poor judgment or like not be good at talking to people. You know, we take for granted um, that people are good to talk at talking to the media in an organized way, you know, and they aren't necessarily. Yeah, I don't know. Well, the, um, the, let yeah, me I, let me hit on that real quick that, that, you know, some of these people aren't reliable sources. I mean, I think if nothing else, you come away with serial concluding that at least some of these people are not reliable sources. Yep. And in fact, at least one person on the podcast is almost certainly outright lying, like mm-hmm. bald face lie. I mean, and of course, I'm talking about between Adnan and Jay. Almost certainly one of them is not telling the truth, <laughs> pretty much definitionally. And I think it's interesting because because of the, at least for me in the media environment, it's very rare to hear a complete bald face lie because you have most often in the media, you have somebody who's being advised by a lawyer and a publicist and people who can massage the language. And so they have little weasel words, ways of saying like, well, I said this, but what I really meant was this. And so it's relatively rare that you have absolute 100% someone is telling for a very long period of time a consistent bald-faced lie. And that to me at least is one of the more interesting things that's going on in this podcast is you're you, you know that somebody is lying and you can't tell which one and that there's something kind of visceral that you want to know who to trust. Well, sure. And the podcast as well throughout was about memory and how it is constructed and how we lie to ourselves and so forth. And in an interesting way, how uh, Sarah herself was creating her own memories on the subject and how they were changing as the podcast was going. Um, so that was interesting. Um, 
I actually want to get back to what you were saying, Pete, um, about um, what the brother of Hay should have or could have said. Um, and I'm wondering if on this overthinking a podcast that we're doing now, we're supposed to be talking about cereal, but there's so like there's so much intertextuality going on. There's cereal, the podcast, but then as well, um, I forget if it was on NPR or on Slate. There, there's a website run by Sarah Koenig and all these other people where there are all these uh, legal documents from the case, mm-hmm. um, and they have like the cell phone pings uh some lawyer made a map of them so you can all look at them and actually the woman deirdre i forget her last name who's involved in the innocence project who's working on adnan's case um actually went on reddit looked at these uh maps of the cell phone towers pinging and said that it was better than what she had so she's actually using it to work on his case um, and then Ravia, who was the one who went to Sarah Koenig in the first place with this story, she um, wrote an article for Slate about how she disagreed with the way that Sarah was um, you know, reporting on the case. So now she has her own blog where she's uh, sort of uh, talking to her or arguing with her about it. Um, and she was actually on Reddit, and then Reddit sort of uh, ran her out of town because they were disagreeing with her. And, and so there is this life beyond the podcast itself. It has become almost like this weird community of people. Um, and like uh, some of them are like murder mystery fanatics, and they, they are interested in being detectives almost themselves. Um, and it's interesting to me to think about like what is the line, the, this blurring line between what is an audience member versus someone who is actually trying to make themselves a character in the case almost. Because you could imagine if someone cracked open some some part of the case or came upon some sort of clue, if there was a, I don't know, some sort of sequel to this podcast, maybe there's an extra episode that comes next year, you know, they could be brought onto the podcast and uh, be someone that Sarah interviews. There was that episode, I forget it was like the second or third to last one, where Sarah was talking to these people who had all of these rumors um, about um, Adnan or um, the other quote-unquote characters and about Jay and so forth. Um, people in the community, in Woodlawn community, who were contacting her through the internet or just random people on the internet who you know, had heard things, all of them getting in contact with her. And she felt like she had to do this whole episode talking to the people on the internet who were trying to insert themselves in the story. And, you know, it, if... I mean, if back in the day this uh, story would have been done on the regular radio, you might have people calling in like this. But I feel like this is the sort of story that is so of this millennium, you know, so uh, it's a different medium, this podcasting, right? And it's so... Um, I don't know. They, it's so intertwined with this social media, internet world that we live in now that I feel like it's totally different than the way radio was in the past. Don't you think? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Like, like it, just people calling in to give their opinions on exactly. things on like the radio and television. Oh, yeah. Well, because it's. I feel like it advances. It advances past the point of of just sort of enthusiasm, right, of sort of fan enthusiasm, to really a collective interpretation and really to sort of a very strong, you know, the author is dead and the literature is being understood by the collective active interpretation. The, uh, the sort of like, you're, yeah, go ahead. So I, I want to, because that was something that I think is interesting. I mean, that we, we're using the, lang- or the kind of the overthinking at tools, we're talking about interpretation, but there's something fundamentally different going on 
on a Reddit thread about what happened, you know, in 1999 with, you know, the, this murder than on the Reddit thread about Inception debating does the top fall down at the end of the movie? Yeah. Like, well, those I, are I, fundamentally I, yeah. different inquiries because... Well, are they, are they being they? carried yeah. out in the fundamentally different spirit? Are they, being, are they being treated in a fundamentally different manner? They are fundamentally different in terms of correspondence to some other independent and potentially verifiable reality. Right. right? Like, that, that's but, what I mean, yeah. is that the, the epistemological question being conducted is at least should be different because there isn't like there are actual answers. Whereas of course the, you know, in a movie there's, you know, the four corners of the text and everything else is interpretation. And it, you, you, you can't, it's impossible that someone is going to come forward and say, you know, I was on the set of inception and I can tell you whether the top fell down or not. It's like, of course the top fell down. Like we know it did, but that doesn't really matter for the, the question we're asking. Yeah. Whereas it's entirely, po- I mean, you, you, we were talking about people inserting them, becoming characters or inserting themselves into the story. But of course, like if someone did solve this, if someone really did come up with the smoking gun in one direction or another, they would be a character in the story. It, not in the same way that you would be if you wrote a fan fiction about a movie that you liked and inserted yourself, you know, palling around with Han Solo or something. Yeah. It's interesting to consider what it means to be a character in the story. So, because I think that that introducing the characters is one of the parts of this whole thing that that is really at the source of a lot of the difficulty in dealing with it. Because when you introduce characters at the beginning of the story, there is this incredibly strong implication that they are critically important to the outcome of the story right that you that it's like okay we you know we meet you know we we think that eventually Jon snow has to be important because he's one of the first people we meet he's one of the main characters we presume in the reddit thread about game of thrones that in the end of the day Jon snow is going to be really important one of the one of the arguments that you can try to make on reddit and believe me i've been on the serial subreddit a lot one of the articles are, are, are arguments you can make that will meet up with like incredible resistance is you know it might be none of these people <laughs> something <laughs> entirely different could have happened to her right and and it's entirely possible because she's in Baltimore where there are hundreds of murderers just walking around, right? And it's, it's like, it's, you know, any number of things could have happened. We don't know what happened. And that, and that just because these people are introduced to us, like the, 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 the comparison to always draw at first for me, especially, especially with regards to Reddit, is the, is the Boston Marathon bombers, right? Like, right. remember, there was the right. theory advanced on Reddit that the Boston Marathon bomber was a disappeared Brown University student, right, who had presumably, in retrospect, committed suicide, right, by jumping into a river, I believe. I'm not sure exactly what what he did, but he came up, he showed up later, and he had killed himself, or he died, and it was very sad, and he was a very emotionally distraught person when he vanished from campus. But here's the thing, he was a character who had been introduced into the broad meta-narrative of these people's analysis, right? Like, that was a person that they were aware of because of the media that they were consuming. Uh, And there was no reason to believe that the characters that they had happened to have been introduced to because of the media that they were consuming had anything to do with the, who the Boston Marathon bomber was. But it was implicit because they, because they see it as a fictional narrative. You know what I mean? I'm getting a little bit too up, uptight about it. but No, I, I think no, you are right that great. people are – a lot of the discourse, because we're so used to using the tools of pop culture, a lot of people are forgetting that the normal rules of pop culture, that the – uh, you know, the gun does not, ha- in fact, have to be fired by the end of the third act here. That we we yeah. can have, you know, the the strands of the story may be completely irrelevant, and there may be strand, there may be the most important strands of the story that we don't see at all. 
Yeah. Well, that was there, there were so many articles before the end of the show. But um, will serial, you know, uh, live up to expectations? Will it have a good ending? And I was thinking, <laughs> who would ask that sort of question? How could? And this wasn't, you know, just from Reddit. This was from something like Slate or Salon. You know, these sort of semi-legit websites <laughs> or legit websites asking these questions. And I know they're just trying to get views from people who are interested in serial. But there were people who were disappointed in the ending of the podcast and it was uh, I, I don't want to say well maybe I do want to say it was like a complete misunderstanding of the way to read this text don't you think I think so but I also think that that I think that it was kind of on the podcast to figure out a way to end and I think a lot of people really liked the end of the podcast oh yeah they did yeah they did I think a lot of people liked it I think a lot of people were you know felt dis- dissatisfied, but I'd be curious if there was some sort of other way that the podcast could have ended um, in some sort of meta narrative. If there was some sort of meta narrative angle that you could take that could more satisfyingly wrap up all these threads that you've talked about, that doesn't end with the question of like, okay, well, did this guy do it or did he not do it? Should he be in jail or should he not be in jail? And also doesn't cop out and use like the New Jack City ending, right? Which is like, I'm on trial, society's on trial. <laughs> you know, like, society are the people who ran that crack house, not Wesley Snipes, right? Not Bernadette Peters. I didn't run that crack house. Society ran the crack house, right? Um, and uh, uh, that was the second worst Bernadette Peters impression that you're going to hear. <laughs> well, actually, I, I could have used a little more of a, a kind of a, a 30,000 foot view of like, what does this story tell us about criminal trials, yeah. about the justice system? I, I actually thought that would have been a if you're going to end your serial podcast with some sort of call to action, I would have been interested to have heard kind of what what are the takeaways about, you know, the reliability of eyewitness testimony and, you know, how much does the adversary system really work? And, you know, the, the I mean, one of the most in, one of the most interesting single kind of characters that came out in any of the podcasts was the bit where they were interviewing one of the jurors who said completely matter-of-factly that, yes, of course we held it against him that he didn't testify because he was being accused of murder and he didn't, he didn't deny it, so he probably did it. <laughs> Which is, like, totally against everything the judge tells you to do. I mean, it's not illegal. The juror can't be punished for that. It's not like the, it's surprising that the juror admitted this. But, and there's a lot, there's a body of academic evidence which shows that the jurors, in fact, do this. But, like, we have this fiction that, oh, you can remain silent at trial and it won't be held against you. And here's a podcast where the juror says, yep, we held it against him. Mm-hmm. Can uh, you – oh, go ahead, Shanna. Sorry. Maybe you were going to ask the same question, Pete. I was going to say, as a lawyer, would you have recommended that he speak in this trial or not? Because I've seen different lawyers say different things on this topic. Yeah, you know, I go back and forth on that. Uh, I mean, so that this, the podcast starts off – That this was one thing that kind of surprised me is the first episode of the podcast kind of leaves you with the impression that his lawyer completely blew it was like completely incompetent. And then when he actually got to the episode where it sh- kind of discusses the trial and the defense strategy in depth, it seems like the lawyer did a pretty good job. I mean, there are certainly tactical decisions that, you know, any lawyer is going to make that might break different ways. I personally think you probably take the chance if, you're, if your client is, you know, as seemingly as um, well-spoken and does not have a criminal history or anything like that that's going to come back to bite him as, as the defendant in this case. I'm kind of surprised you don't have Adnan testify, even though, of course, he is going to get confronted with all these potential contradictions and stuff. Uh, but, you know, you need to have something for the jury to hear. 
but I'm not shocked. You know, it's it's kind of a, a pretty much doctrine of faith among many defense attorneys that, that you never do that. that you yeah. almost never put the defendant on the stand unless you really, really need to, or unless you you've, you've got a 100% airtight way to go. Because it's a, because you're subjecting yourself to cross examination at that point, and and then it's like all bets are off, sort of. Right. And cross-examination is really, really brutal. Like, they'll be hitting him with all the details of the cell phone calls and, well, where were you Where were you at this exact minute and where were you at this exact minute? And then if you contradict yourself, you know, because if you said something six hours ago, you know, when you didn't have any food, you know, and you, you weren't thinking very well, they're going to come back. And you did this morning, didn't you tell us that you were with your friend at five o'clock or, you know, and if they seize on one of those contradictions, all of a sudden everything you say, according to them, is a lie. So it is a it is a big risk because, you know, cross-examination is a pretty brutal experience, particularly for a criminal defendant. You mentioned, you mentioned something else, and I was wondering if you could go into this a little bit for the benefit of all of us who aren't uh, in the legal profession. You mentioned uh, the ad- adversarial, right? Adversarial right. aspect of justice, uh, or, or justice in scare quotes. Could you kind of explain what that means? What it, what it, the sort of, and what maybe what kind of issues with this idea of adversarialness or adversarial trials or whatnot might have been borne out, maybe both by this podcast and also maybe by the conversation around the podcast a little bit. I don't know. If you could sort of parse that a little bit. Get sure, started. sure. The, I mean, of course, the basic part of it, the adversary system is that, you know, there, there are other ways of doing it. There are – the easiest way to explain it is to talk about what other systems do. There are systems where there's essentially a neutral kind of magistrate who interviews witnesses, you know, in, in either open court or on the side. And ha- there's a neutral investigator who goes out and gathers evidence and then they kind of gather it all up and, and come to a verdict. And there may or may not be advocates for the different sides of a dispute. But there's, there's more of a kind of collective, let's all figure this out. Whereas the U.S. system is completely not that. You have the state or the government, which decides who they want to prosecute. And then they gather all the evidence they can that tends to incriminate that person. And you have the defense attorney who gathers all the evidence they can that makes it seem less likely that they did the crime. Both sides throw it in front of the jury and make their arguments, and the jury makes the decision. Um, which, you know, there, there are a lot of things to recommend it. You do want to have, you know, passionate advocates on both sides. You know, the the, the whole idea is that there's this crucible, uh, that the truth comes out if you, you know, kind of both sides go as hard and as fast as they can against the other side. You know, hopefully the, the truth will out. Uh, but there are some pretty systematic problems with that theory. I mean, you you have... At that point, it becomes competitive, and so the government, which has massive resources of gathering evidence, is not really incentivized to poke holes in their own story. I mean, that's on display here, where you have a witness for the government who's testifying against the person that they think committed the crime. And so the government's not going to spend time figuring out whether or not Jay's story matches up with the cell phone towers. And if it doesn't, they're certainly not going to call attention to that fact. Um, and in this case, the defense attorney kind of tries to call attention to it, but doesn't do it very effectively. And it's, the government certainly isn't going to help them out and, you know, just clarify for the jury what the defense attorney is talking about. No, they're going to take that as a point in their advantage and try to exploit that advantage uh, for their own, you know, for to accomplish their goal, which potentially causes problems. And then I think that infects the discourse. I think you're going to end up with team the state of Maryland and team Adnan and not really have too much in between ground. 
I have a question, I mean, not only for you, Ben, but for everyone here. Um, you were talking about how you wished that there had uh, been more of a, like, the moral of the story is that uh, this adversarial system works or it doesn't, or this is what the public needs to do to fix the system. Um, and in that way, I guess you saw, and correct me if I'm wrong, the podcast as a piece of reporting and specifically a piece of editorial reporting. Um, is, that, is that the case or do you think we're supposed to read it um, more as like narrative nonfiction or, you know, what kind of text is this? How are we supposed to be interacting with it, do you think? I mean, for me, the where the most interesting questions come out is as kind of a meta meta commentary on the act of reporting itself. Cause it, sure. as, as you, Pete, you said, I mean, Sarah Koenig is the, the main character of this drama much more so than in a lot of other podcasts or journalistic endeavors. This is as much a story about what happened in 1999 as it's a story about what Sarah Koenig did in 2013 and 2014 to investigate this crime. And, and kind of the process of how do you reconstruct something that happened 15 years ago? What are the the steps you have to go through to try and get reliable information and, and, and all that? Yeah. I mean, I would offer a contrasting uh, thought about what it's about. And I would say I would locate Serial very strongly in the tradition of the performance art of storytelling. Because that's what This American Life is. And that's where Miss American Life comes from. And this means that it's more like stuff like The Moth. Right. Yeah, or, I was about to say yeah. them off exactly. Yeah, why did you you want to talk about that then? If that was what you had in mind? I mean, I'm not how, sure how, how I even you... with you just as you were saying that. I was like, oh yes, like the moth, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So like story, storytelling. Oh, I would start with like, story... personal. You know, just like Ben was saying, it's not necessarily about uh, what happened in the story itself, but how it is told and how it's filtered through the storyteller. Yeah. Um, and yeah, how it affects the audience as well. And I, w- I would further clarify that, like, the art of storytelling, and not just storytelling, you know, storytelling with a capital S, not storytelling with a little s. Storytelling, like you might see at the Moth, is related to slam poetry, right? right. It's related to sort of academic discourses of identity, right? It's, 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 a, it's an art that is about kind of um, – fra- it's about framing personal narrative and communicating personal experience be- because I believe I believe – that storytelling comes with sort of an implicit initial idea that the way that our mass media kind of conveys human experience is insufficiently sensitive to our own ideas of ourselves, our own subjective experience. Vulnerability is a big value in storytelling. You know, Mike, think about like, well, Mark Bergbiglia is a guy on Netflix. You can watch, if you want to see a good example of like a sort of stand-up storytelling kind of hybrid, right? You can watch my girlfriend's boyfriend, Mike Bergbiglia, instant streaming on Netflix unless they took it down in favor of I, Frankenstein. Um, but it, but it's a lot of it is about his vulnerability, his fears, right? His his sort of like his very specific uh, observations about his emotional state, and, and that what this is does is it's almost like it has sort of an existential aspect where you're kind of creating and validating the experience of this person that's doing the storytelling, even if that person isn't somebody that society would generally look to as kind of an exemplar or a heroic figure, right? So you could have, and that, I think part of what this American life is, is you're kind of finding ways to kind of quietly and maturely uh, lionize uh, tales of experience that might not be 
compelling enough in very specific, narrow, discursive ways to make it in other kinds of forms, right? And in that sense, I think you see the tradition of storytelling in serial in the focus on, like, Sarah Koenig's personal observations about Adnan, the idea of sort of Adnan's experience in prison, what he's been going through, what everyone else has been going through, right? There's an idea that there's a value in the people who are suffering through all this, or deal not even suffering, because that's, again, suffering is, like, too hegemonic a way of referring to everything that's happening here. Storytelling says that it strives to be non-judgmental in a sense, uh, at least to withhold judgment of sort of traditional sorts, right, and kind of see everything from the perspective of the people who are involved if you can, or at least to understand that everything has a subjective perspective, which is that of the storyteller in this case. So, you know, she's trying to deal tenderly, right, the tenderness that she has in talking about Anon. A lot of people on Reddit would say that that showed that she had poor judgment uh, because she was too soft on him, because she was attracted to him or something. And I don't think so. I think it comes out of the tradition of storytelling, and it comes out of this idea that, like, I'm not really going to prove whether or not he did it, but I'm going to be able to relay some aspect of the human truth of what's happening to this person. Uh, and that's kind of more of the goal. I mean, Shana, you, you know the moth. You've listened to the moth, and, and I'm not, you, know, you probably have a different perspective on the relationship between storytelling and serial. Um, or well, what, 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 Do you want to answer? Matt, what, did you want to answer Shana's question? Or Shana, yeah, do you want to answer Matt answer. Like, how many episodes have you listened to, Matt? I, I listened to the first one and, uh, and I was immediately hooked by it. And I had the weird, I had the weird resistance to it that you sometimes have to something that you don't want to, uh, that you don't want to engage with because you feel like you're going to get sucked in. Does that make sense? <laughs> well, like, I, it's like, I Oh did. God, there's like, there's 12, this is 12 hours of my life. Like if I take one more step, that step is as good as 12 hours. And, uh, I, for a variety of reasons, as it was unfolding over the last couple of months, I didn't have the capacity to do that. And so after, uh, listening to it on a long drive, I was both like, uh, I was both like, um, you know, super compelled and also like super, uh, uh, trepidatious, excited and scared in Stephen Sondheim's <laughs> words, um, to, uh, you know, to to start it. But I've been watching. I mean, that's that's interesting, right? Like, it's interesting to me what you're saying. Sort of, what is the story of Serial, right? I mean, and actually, like the the name Serial is interesting to me, even though it was probably decided long before this particular subject was. Um, was uh, settled on right like hey i'm i'm this american life i'm i'm if only uh i'm i'm going to you know i'm ira glass i'm going to sort of expand my podcasting empire i you know just uh spun out of npr into my own audio syndication business that's going to have uh radio and podcasting components like okay we're going to do a long form uh storytelling thing because like it it seems like a logical brand extension of this american life and and also, it seems like there's a market for this kind of thing. Hashtag long form, 10,000 words on Cowboy Bebop. Um, the, the uh, you know, what are we going to call it? We're going to call it, you know, we're going to call it serial. Okay, so what what is being serialized, right? Like, the implication of a serial is that, well, it's a longer story chopped into two smaller bits, right? It's like Dickens uh, serializing his novels in the, um, you know, in the paper. 
papers. It's like uh, uh, the film serials of the early part of the 20th century, which were sort of genre movies chopped up into uh, d- 10-minute chunks that, that were shown before the main features, right? And you would, you would go back and sort of, sort of see them. I think the idea of, of the name serial implies that there already is a, a pre-existing narrative, right? There, there is an extant um, story that can be told in one sitting, but we're not going to tell it in one sitting. We're going to chop it up into uh, into weekly installments. And so there, it seems like there is sort of an, an implicit contract to end just because the, the name of the podcast um, seems to seems to promise that there's there's going to be um, that there's going to be an end. Right. Uh, well, doesn't it have yeah. like a pulpy feeling as well? When I think of you know the old timey serials, it, it feels like you know this is going to be a cowboy story or a spy story or you know, uh, some sort of noir story. Right, or it's going to be right. Like, yeah, this like is it a, is lurid, right? This is a sort of right. This is a sort of self published ebook on the internet, right? That <laughs> like you know that uh, well, and and actually, by the way, like a lot of overthinking, uh, several overthinking writers have uh, ebooks available that that are very good but like i'm thinking of i'm thinking of like uh 50 shades of gray here right like i'm thinking of like a twilight fanfic uh level of of self-published ebook that becomes this you know that becomes this other thing right like the pulpiness that you refer to is what is luridness right is the idea that it's going to appeal it's going to appeal covertly to prurient interests um you know and and this is no this is no uh this is no exception right there's there's a high school girl in it you know um there there are you know kids there's there's uh i mean i i i almost thought like when pete i i nearly broke in sardonically when pete said you know oh people are saying that that this is an example of sarah canning's back judgment and she must be attracted to him right like and it's like oh what a bunch of of a bunch of people on reddit are accusing a woman of of being irrational because of sexy time you know yep. like, <laughs> what stop if i had a dollar we wouldn't need to advertise i'll say that much stop the presses <laughs> if overthinking it had a dollar for every time someone on reddit questioned the judgment of a woman for sexual reasons and no other reason uh we would we could tell we could tell diamond dallas page and goldberg <laughs> that they meet up in the squared circle and not on the advertising network <laughs> hey, some of them didn't like deirdre because she was uh too excited about things that wasn't for sexy reasons that was just because of the you know the tone of her voice so yeah, and also and also the lawyer and also yeah the vocal fry and the up top and the up talk and the the, the chirpy <laughs> the, voices the right like um uh, that sorry i it's it's a whole thing it, it's sorry it's a whole area of discourse i i really don't mean to engage oh god if you're outraged by the content of this episode please don't comment or email it <laughs> really don't do anything unsubscribe for god's sake right like it's a podcast you can you know you control let your go, consumption let go it's <laughs> something something anymore well, well, that's, oh, I that mean, was just my burn, my best burn at Peter's. So that's the, that's the that's 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 the interesting thing, right? Like when you say this is uh, a, the story a, of a girl, Wait, no. a, a media property that is of its time, right? It's important that this is that this is a podcast. I'm sort of curious about 
digging into I'm I'm curious about digging into that and what it means, right? Because it's is it because podcasts come to us on our web browsers and on our phones and the same way that social media comes to us? Because it's it's a radio show, right? It's a really old timey uh the uh, format in in one sense and is named in homage to a sort of old timey um, use of the format. So, right. Is it the fact that it's sort of opt in media, that it's sort of on demand media? Do you feel like that's important to the, you know, to the reading of this text that, that we have, or if it had been um, broadcast in 12 successive weeks on this American life, do you feel like it would be, uh, our reaction to it would uh, have unfolded in quite the same way. I feel different because of the virality of it. I wouldn't have listened to it if it wasn't that, as Ben said, Ben, you said uh, weeks back when we were working on the Final Fantasy VI book club uh, podcast that, you know, I'm a white guy in a coastal city. Of course, I have to listen to Serial. And I said, well, I'm a white person in a coastal city. I should listen to Serial. So that's how it started. And of course, you know, if it was if it was on the radio or if it was just, you know, This American Life week to week, I... It, feels different because it didn't have that urgency like hey everyone we're all talking about this on twitter like let's uh, all come together and listen to this uh cold case and i it just has a different feeling uh to me because of that um but i don't know if you guys had the same experience if you just started listening to it for other reasons that had nothing to do with that virality no, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I picked it up because a friend on Facebook uh, after the first episode came out, a friend who's a uh, a lawyer posted, hey, this is really, really interesting. You should listen to it. And so I listened to the first episode and got hooked. Um, but I think there's... It could have happened th- with a radio show, too, but... But no, it's, you see, it couldn't, it couldn't happen. I, I listened to it because I'm interested in the, in the medium of podcasting. How, how's that for an inside baseball well, answer? There. But the, 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 like, it couldn't have happened on the radio because you can't click on the, on, on a Facebook post and listen to the radio, you know, True. uh, it has to be digital media. Right. And I think there's something about the way, at least, I don't know, I think most people listen to podcasts that set them apart, which is, it's a little bit more, part of your it's kind of an always on medium or a kind of your part of your daily routine in a way that you know when i when game of thrones comes out i sit on my couch to watch generally speaking to watch the episode of game of thrones and maybe that i have something else going on maybe i'm putzing around on the computer but for the most part like that's what i'm doing at the time when i'm listening to serial i'm never just like sitting on my couch in a dark room listening to serial i'm cleaning the garage or i'm jogging or i'm driving to work which I think is how most people listen to the podcast. So it, it becomes almost like a uh, companion, someone to, that you're talking with about this interesting case that, that, come, that is kind of always on in your, in your head. Yeah, that is something that, that has struck me about the podcasting medium. I sort of find myself having conversations out loud with podcasts, right, in a way that you never would sitting in front of the television and watching, you know, Charlie Rose or whatever, right? Like, I have a lot more conversations with Mark Marin than I have with Charlie <laughs> Rose, even though they both do, you know, a pretty straight-ahead interview show. Um, it's, uh, t- t- it's, a lot more, it's a lot more intimate. I mean, I, and I think that has to do with a lot of things. It's because it's on headphones, right? It's because it's uh, I choose the time and the place that I listen to it. It's because I happen to be walking around doing other things. Um, it's because 
you can sort of you can sort of pop it, pause it, and and stop it, and make it. Um, <laughs> make it sort of obey your will, right? In that, uh, it, because podcasts are always an and; they're never an or, <laughs> as the end of, end of the woods would say. Right, as Blood Riding Hood would say. <laughs> <laughs> that's what uh, that's what woods are for, right? <laughs> I think I think uh, all of Adnan and Jay and and I mean the woods is not Leakin Park. That is true, right? Like that would be if 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 Little Red Riding Hood came upon a dead body in the woods and nobody knew what had happened to it, that'd be a musical that we would make. That that make cross- like that is that is almost literally something that happens in Into the Woods. I mean, you know, yeah, for true. for what it's worth. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, thing. I mean, it's an interesting point of comparison to me because of the, I, I guess the hinge is ambivalence, right? I remember I was, I was once watching an Eddie Izzard comedy concert and he came to the end of the concert and the, like, there was this long pause. It's the one that he did uh, in San Francisco at, at Alcatraz. I forget, uh, I forget the name of the concert. And he said, I, I sort of like my shows to end with a, huh? Oh, to kind of trail off right into nothingness rather than to end with a, uh, uh, with a big ta-da. And, um, you know, I I suppose that's an okay way to end uh, a narrative in a medium like podcasting, because you know, the overthinking of podcasts will be back next week. And until then you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. We didn't make a MailChimp joke, though. Don't advertise for them until we get paid for it. (laughs) I will say that I prefer how uh, 80s hair metal songs choose to end over how Eddie Izzard shows end, which is by repeating the last thing that they said a whole bunch of more times until they gradually fade out. I'll say that I prefer how 80s hair metal shows end rather than how Eddie Izzard shows end because you just repeat the last thing that you said until it gradually fades out. I don't know about you guys. I don't know how you guys feel. Can you do a key change, though, Pete? Yeah, I can, and I can name cities. Tokyo. I don't know how other pod. Oh no, now I don't get into that topic. We're not going to get involved in it at all. Oh man. And miles to go before I sleep. <laughs>